Hello everyone, I'm Kate Braug and this is The Pivotal Moment. Together we will talk to 100 of the most inspiring and powerful women entrepreneurs in New York. They will tell us about what it takes to set up your own company, how to be the architect of your own career and how they are reshaping the business world. I'm an entrepreneur myself and I'm looking forward to hearing their stories along with you. Rape is unfortunately still a current topic. According to the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network, a sexual assault happens every 98 seconds in the United States. And while one in five women experience rape in their lifetime, 60% of the survivors don't report it. And even when they do, less than 1% of rapists are convicted. These are shocking numbers. And today I'm speaking to Ancha Wegeman. Ancha is the founder of Redesign the Kit, which is a company that focuses on redesigning the current rape kit and simplifying the process of forensic evidence for sexual assault cases. Anja has received praise from a lot of people since she started this, and she also won Fast Company's 2020 World Changing Ideas Award. Anja has a background in design. She has a master's in liberal arts from Harvard University, where she focused on corporate sustainability and innovation, and she is determined to drastically improve the experience for rape survivors and medical workers. Anja, I'm so impressed by you. You're doing such important work, so thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Congratulations on winning the award. That is an amazing accomplishment. Well done. Thank you. Yeah, it still feels sort of surreal, but it's it's a very exciting award to have won. Yeah, absolutely. Anja, in these episodes, we talk about pivotal moments in the lives of inspiring women entrepreneurs. And the first thing I want to ask you is if you can remember the specific moment you decided that you were going to do this. And I don't necessarily mean registering the company or brainstorming for a suitable business name or creating the business model, but the moment that you decided for yourself that you were going to redesign the current rape kit. You know, I wish it was a specific moment. In many ways it was, but it was also a little bit more um, of a buildup to that. So this began as a master's thesis project at the School of Visual Arts in a program called Products of Design. Um, And what they really do for your thesis is it's not a typical thesis where you just have this one project, but you you really build a topic and the idea is that you don't know the solution. And so you spend a year creating about five different products and services and experiences to sort of really figure out what the solution is. And so I think um, I had always been really passionate about gender issues and the sort of... um, I guess in many ways, like an angry feminist of like the Mm. constant struggles that women had to face. And I think that I, I knew what rape kits were in the same way that I think the general public does. Like, you know, it exists and you've heard the name, but you don't really know anything more about it. Um, And so I was sort of in this place where, where, you know, there's so much pressure to pick this thesis topic. And I thought, you know, now is that maybe the time to sort of channel that energy and that sort of like anger that I have to really improve the lives of women in some way. And I don't know exactly. I think it was actually listening to a podcast that sort of triggered it. And I, and it was about the rape kit backlog and having sort of been a newcomer to design. I was like, I just really believed in the power of design and how design could really change these big problems. And it just, 
hearing like these thousands and thousands of untested rape kits, I thought like, okay, here's a product and there's something about it that just must not be working for it to be so forgotten and, and untested and neglected. And like, could this be a big design problem? And, you know, was a little bit nervous to take on this task and was sort of like, am I going to change this topic? Like, is this too much? but really sort of fell in love with the idea of of improving it. And that's sort of how it all began. I want to skip back for a bit because a moment ago you said you were an angry feminist. What were you angry about? Yeah, you know, I think so many things. You know, I, I feel really passionate about women's right to choose. Just, you know, I think having grown up as a young woman in the U.S. and and these sort of like pressures around relationships and and sex and like sort of growing up and learning the kind of the hard way that you have to speak up for yourself and you have to take control of your own body and that you're never really taught that and and sort of being like angry that that you aren't taught that and that you have to figure that out on your own and then of course like hearing over and over and over on the news everywhere in the world about like you know, these women that are raped, that are murdered. And it's just like, it's, it's, a, it makes you angry. You know, it's like, why, why is this okay? And why is this happening everywhere in the world? And why is no one doing anything about it? And rape is quite a specific topic. Were you driven to this topic because of personal experiences with rape or sexual assault? Yeah, you know, I think I'm, I feel fortunate to say that I haven't. I think in retrospect, there were probably like instances of sexual assault that I experienced that at the time I didn't register as that. Like I just sort of thought like, just go with it. Um, and I think we all have our own definitions of what assault is and what we agree or don't agree to do. And so I think it's It's a really gray area, but I would say in like a traditional sense, whatever that may be, I feel very fortunate to not have experienced it. And but, you know, I also look back and think that I have certainly had a lot of friends that did experience it and sort of being alongside them during that was also very difficult. I think that the danger is that a lot of us, especially when we hear the word rape, conjure a rather one-sided image in our minds. And I realized that I did the same while reading more about the topic this week. Initially, when I thought of rape, I thought of a violent forced act, while rape and sexual assault can be much more subtle. Exactly. You know, and and for part of my initial reading, um, I read Not That Bad, um, which is a book by Roxane Gay. And it just it's it's these different stories of women who say exactly that. You know, it's like you you sort of make up in your mind like, yeah, that was bad, but it wasn't that bad. And it's like these stories, like some of them to someone else would be like, that's, how could you not think that that's bad? To sort of rationalize their going, yeah. (laughs) Can you tell us a bit more about the kit itself? What makes it different from the current rape kit? So every kit in the United States is different. So um, it's up to the jurisdictions to decide what that kit contains. Um, And when I say different, it's, they're they're relatively the same. They're, They're, you know, they might have like, slight differences in their appearance. But um, what makes it different is the the steps that are selected for each um, evidence collection part of the kit. So imagine sort of like a cardboard box um, with 
official forensic police paperwork style on on the top on the outside of it so like who is collecting this evidence who what's the name of the survivor what hospital etc and then on the inside are going to be like anywhere from 10 to 15 envelopes that either have instructions on the front of them of, on how to collect evidence and then with swabs on the inside or different tools like different paper um, or sometimes there's like a general manual that that runs you through each of these steps. Taking all of those envelopes out of the kit itself takes a full minute and 30 seconds. So this is like, <laughs> like imagine you just ordered a box full of like tons of envelopes or bills and you have to open every single one of them and lay them out and then, you know, do them or collect them or whatever their purpose is. Um, and the current kit itself takes anywhere from two to 10 hours to collect evidence from the victim. So that is a long time. It's a very long time. And that's not always including the hours that they're sitting in the emergency room. And so I think the biggest issue that I found with the current kit is that most of them are designed for what is called a sexual assault nurse examiner or a SANE nurse. And the fact is that only 13% of hospitals in the country actually have these trained nurses. So these nurses are specifically trained to test rape survivors for sexual assault. Exactly. So they so they understand the forensic evidence process. They go through um, like different trauma-focused training um, and they've been found to be like extremely helpful in this process, uh, but there just really aren't that many of them. And, you know, I even, I was a sexual assault advocate at the New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York, and they do have sane nurses, but in all of the time that I've been on call there, I've never actually seen one with the kit because they're just so few of them. So what happens is that the majority of the kits are actually collected by an emergency room nurse or doctor that's on call, and many of them have never even seen it or or collected evidence before. So um, it's a com it, it's a really overwhelming process for them as well. And you know these nurses and doctors are already overworked and understaffed, and it's it's you know they have to come in here and try and provide care, but then also learn this whole forensic process that they also understand has like this whole other legal component. So it's, it's really like a whole new world. And that is really where the kit that I've designed differs. So it's really not only focused on improving the experience for the survivor, but also making the process easier for the nurse and doctor so that hopefully it speeds up the process. And then in the long term, so that it can be more accessible, so that it's like something that is so simple to do that it could even be at like a CVS minute clinic. Um, and then people who are afraid of going to the emergency room can still have access to them. And so some of those changes are reflected in the design of the instructions or the envelopes. So using different infographics, because right now it's, it's very word heavy and, yeah. and very confusing. So like, imagine you had to like, I always use the Ikea as a reference. And like, if instead of those graphics, you had a paragraph for each one of those steps, like it's super confusing. So of course, I looked at images of the current rape kit and your rape kit. And you can't really blame nurses or doctors for getting confused because the current kit is so unclear with a lot of copy everywhere with very small lettering. 
And your kit has this almost this light feeling to it with minty green colors and very clear instructions. But what struck me most about your kit is that you clearly made a very conscious design decision, which is that on the top of the box, it says, we believe in you. Why did you choose to add that element to the design? Yeah, I think it's so important because, um, you know, I think one of the biggest problems of sexual assault is this natural, like, inclination to sort of like question survivors. And um, it doesn't, you know, I say natural, but there's nothing natural about it. It's super societal. And we've all, you know, I even notice it in myself sometimes having worked in sexual assault now for almost two years, but like, I'll hear something and be like, that, like, really, like, did that happen? And it's like, we're just, we're trained to question it. And, and so you know, I think the most important thing is that from most of the research that's been done, um, false cases are around like two to 3%. And, um, you know, it's, it's crazy that we are trained to disbelieve survivors when in fact, that's not the case. And that rarely is someone going to lie about this or, you know, put someone else through, a court case or, or a trial um, for a lie. And so really starting to to make that prominent so that everyone starts to question that initial reaction of disbelief and to be like, no, 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 this is something that we have to believe in. Right. And the kit also includes a smartphone app, which walks the victims through the process of collecting the evidence. Why is that so important? Yeah. So, um, Within the research that I, I did around accessing kits, um, it was so shocking to me how hard it is to, first of all, find out what to do after an assault. So, you know, there are plenty of hotlines and there are different websites with various resources, but, you know, it's not the same as like calling 911 and knowing that an emergency, uh, an ambulance is going to come or, um, you know, going to the hospital and knowing if you broke your arm, you're going to get a cast and it's going to be fixed. Like it's, it's very hard. So the hope with the app is to, to make resources a little bit more accessible to survivors. And I think how that translates in the actual emergency room, which hopefully it would eventually move out of the emergency room. But like in that moment, um, I've noticed as someone, as an advocate who's been in the room, you know, sometimes nurses and doctors might say to them, do you want to do this step? Uh, it, you know, it, it might be a little invasive or like you don't have to do this step. And there's just really nothing for survivors to make that decision off of. So, you know, it, it's just it's sort of an unfair question because they they don't have enough information to make an educated decision. And probably given that they don't want to do it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so I think the the app is super important because it gives the survivor something immediately to sort of like it's almost like their bill of rights. That's like this is this is the kit, this is what to expect, this is what will come of it, these are what every single step will be, and this is what you can expect so that you're not sort of, you know, sitting there not knowing what's gonna come next. And it can allow them to make decisions that say like, you know what, maybe I don't need to do this one because, um, you know, my assault didn't involve whatever that step is. 
um, and then also allows them to follow in real time when the nurse or doctor are ready to, to collect the evidence so that they can also help the nurse or doctor when they might be confused. And so that's something that I heard a lot from SANE nurses is that it's really important to allow the survivor to um, take control of the exam. So some like SANE nurses will let them swab themselves and, and these things that are really important so that they don't continue to feel violated. Anja, you've studied rape for a long time, uh, and I can imagine that it's very hard, for example, when a friend or a family member opens up about rape. Can you advise on the right way to respond? Yeah, so I think I have to credit all of my my knowledge in response to the sexual assault advocacy training that I did. Um, and, you know, what is the most important thing that I learned in that is to really create a space where you you let a survivor know that first and foremost you believe them that you want to hear what they have to say um but really just listening to them and providing any sort of information that you can about them or for them rather and i think this was something that was really hard because the training that we had was not only for sexual assault victims but domestic violence victims and i think the two are very closely related and and it's often our instinct if someone says that someone close to them is hurting them to to you know suggest that they leave them um, when in fact they teach you that that person knows what is best for them and what is the safest environment for them and sometimes being with someone who is abusive is actually safer than leaving them um, and so i think that is something that's just really hard to sort of like shift your behavior to to make it not about what you think someone should do, but really helping them figure out what is the right thing for them to do. And I think another thing that's hard is, you know, as humans, we always want to talk about ourselves and say like, well, right. this happened to me once. And, you know, they, they taught us like, that seems nice, but don't do it because now you're asking them to be empathetic towards something that happened to you. So like, let, let them have that space and, and just, you know, create a space where, where they feel believed and, and that they can talk to you about whatever they need. Anja, in 2018, the FBI data showed that there was a spike in reported rapes in the preceding four years following a change in the definition of rape. I'm just going to read out both the old and new definition of rape. The old definition is the carnal knowledge of a female forcibly and against her will. The new definition is the penetration, no matter how slight, of the vagina or anus with any body part or object or oral penetration by a sex organ of another person without the consent of the victim. What comes to mind when you listen to the old definition? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there are a lot of things, you know, it's it's really focused on on that image that we all have, sort of what we were talking about earlier, that it's something that happens to only women that it is, um, you know, going to be really violent and that it's, it's really just sex, right? So like if you have any sort of oral assault, it's not rape. Yeah, I think that's my initial reaction. Yeah, because to me, it sounds like the first definition, well, it's quite, quite primitive, but also that, like you said, it completely excludes men as rape victims. Your kit, is it also usable for men? 
Yeah, absolutely. It is not specifically for women in any way. And I think another thing that's really important is that I learned that in many hospitals, these kits are also used for domestic violence victims if they have any sort of like strangulation or any sort of wound. So it you know, I'm really hoping that this can be something that is not only accessible to any and all genders, but that it's also something that is used for, for general assault because domestic violence and sexual assault are often so related. And when you worked as a domestic violence volunteer, did you see a lot of men come in? No, I didn't actually at all. But I did do a public rape kit exhibition in Union Square in New York, I think last March. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was really touched that there were so many men that came to talk to me about their assault and their experience. So, you know, they certainly, it happens to them as well. And they seek help also and, and have similar, you know, traumatizing experiences with the kit. I want to switch to your experience as an entrepreneur, because even though the company is not officially registered yet, you have a full-time job on the side. How do you manage those two things? It's really hard. There's definitely no secret to that. But, you know, what I really try to do is I have a lovely co-founder now, um, Lona Vincent. And I think having a co-founder is certainly helpful because you can sort of have like an accountability buddy and you can encourage each other to do things. She also works full time. So it's definitely hard for both of us. But right now, I'm really just trying to carve out a certain amount of time and set like smaller goals and deadlines. And then, you know, slowly continue to look for funding. And then the dream is that, you know, as soon as I can get more and more funding, I can work on it full time. And how much funding do you guys need? So we're looking at around 200,000 to start and to be able to work on it full time. And how are you currently going about raising the money? So we are, you know, we're doing a lot of smaller um, funding competitions and searching for different grants um, and then participating in various uh, pitch competitions. So um, in February, right before all of this happened, um, we were part of the SoGal pitch competition in Silicon Valley, and uh, we're one of the winners for that. So that's oh, congratulations. Exciting. Well done. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, like, things like that are, are really exciting and wonderful. It's definitely a slower process when you, when you work full time. Yeah, of course. And what are your dreams for the company? Oh, I have so many. Good. I, I would say the dream is is really to to create you know these different phases, and the first being a kit that can really improve the experience in the hospital, and then slowly you know move move onwards. And it would be wonderful to have some sort of like clinic in a way like a Planned Parenthood that is more accessible and easier for domestic violence and sexual assault victims to get to and to find better resources and really just, you know, there are so many products that need to be in the market to help, you know, different survivors that aren't there. And so really sort of opening up that area of the market and, and allowing survivors to get the justice that they deserve. It sounds like the company itself really has a mission to make the world a better place. While doing so, I can imagine that it can also be difficult to switch off from that mission. When do you take time for yourself with a full-time job, with trying to set up this company? How do you do that? I wish I had an easy answer to that. I think that I've always sort of been someone who's doing like too many things at once. You know, the, the, the Harvard master's that I got, I got while working full time at Harvard. And mm -hmm. so I'm just used to like 
to, you know, working a full-time job and coming home and doing more work. And, and I have to say that I am a huge TV head and I watch so much TV and movies. When? (laughs) Yeah. I don't like people are like how and when, and I don't even, I think it's like every free moment I have, like if I eat, when I eat breakfast or when I have dinner and when I go to sleep (laughs) and that's sort of like my, my self-care. I love movies and TV. I love stories. I love storytelling. The last thing you watched. I'm really into, (laughs) into this Apple TV show right now called Little America. It's so beautiful. It's about different immigrant stories and the U.S. I have such a wide range of things, but right now those are really inspiring and they're true stories. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm binging. And your sister um, wrote an article about her time working for an NGO in Iraq, which was quite impressive, actually. Is helping others something that runs in your family? I think, you know, my mother was a minister for most of her life, a, a Protestant reverend or minister. And I think it's something that we're realizing we absorbed unconsciously from her. It's, you know, it's the type of, of job where you, you give yourself to everyone. Um, you know, you spend day and night helping your, your parishioners with whatever problems they might have and helping them solve it and, and really just like being there for them. And so I think that is something that we really picked up from her. Um, and it just felt, I think to us, like that's the way of life. Like you help other people. Um, so I feel, you know, in retrospect, really blessed to have had that growing up. And how did your mother feel about the kit and about your work? Um, I think she's really excited about it. She, you know, is so supportive and always very excited. And, you know, it's been an interesting journey for me. And so I think because I'm, I'm relatively new in the design world, I think more than anything, she's excited that I'm channeling it towards something that I really love doing. But of course, she feels very passionate as well about women's issues and gender issues and, and just really thinks of it as something that's, that's so important. You have a background in art and design, but you've used your creativity to help others. Are there other ways that you channel your creativity? Yeah, I think so. Probably like many other people in quarantine right now, I'm like obsessed with plants. Like I'm buying so many plants. <laughs> and um, I try and definitely give myself a couple hours a day where I'm not doing anything digitally. And so I've started like painting the plant pots or like thinking of other ways to be creative. I took a mochi making class this morning. So um, how was that? Oh my gosh. It was so fun. I have a weak spot for mochi. Me too. It's so good. And it's not that hard. Just a quick question. How do you make the outer shell? It's rice flour, sugar, and then water. And you really, you just sort of like steam or microwave it and and then like mix it all together and roll it up and you put it like in this kind of like starch to make sure that it's not super sticky it's not as hard as you would think it tastes a little bit chemical as well but i'm very happy to hear that it's just rice flour water and sugar yeah you uh, have mentioned that you find it hard to find female role models which is exactly why i started this podcast <laughs> i just realized that the only names i could come up with when people would ask me about sources of inspirations or role models in interviews were businessmen and never women mm. why do you think it's so hard for us to find female mentors 
Well, I think, you know, because so many women are fighting for these roles of leadership that I think sometimes they're not always accessible to everyone else. And then I think just statistically, there are far few of them. And, you know, it was something I really struggled with after school. I was torn between these two really amazing design job opportunities. And I just kept thinking, like, I just want a successful female designer to help me with what decision I should make. Because I have plenty of like, you know, supportive male mentors, but their experience jumping from, you know, a job to a different job is going to be completely different. And I really, I couldn't find one. I think what's hard is that there, you know, I could think of of various women that, you know, had taught in my program or that I felt really inspired by or that could talk to me, but they, maybe some of them weren't exactly designers. So it's like sort of this thing where you, you have people that like, might be good, but it, it's it's not a, as big of a pool as there are for men. So like, you know, you could pull a successful male designer really easily and someone that's going to want to talk to you, but they're just statistically are, are so far fewer females. Do you think that will change? I do. I, I, I think it will. I think it's starting to. Um, I think it'll just be a matter of time, hopefully. Right. If you could pick one person in the world you could have dinner with, who would it be? You know, just to sort of be cheesy and stereotypical, I might have to go with one of the Obamas just because of the time that we're in right now. <laughs> um, and I just watched um, Michelle Obama's homecoming and I just think there's something so inspirational about both Michelle and Barack Obama. I would love to talk to them. Anja, thank you for being here today. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. And for everyone at home, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Next week, I'll be speaking to Rachel Renock, who's an incredible woman. Without any form of business education, she raised over $5 million for her company, Wethos. Have a wonderful day.